It is now time for the People's War Radio Show. You just heard Fuji La by the Fujis. Fuji La provides an internationalist perspective of urban life and conditions for African communities, a topic we will touch on today. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Historically, African people in America have been forced to live within restrictive boundaries separate from white communities. Our communities suffer colonial conditions of poverty, police containment, lack of services, poorly equipped or non-existent schools or hospitals, toxic housing conditions, and no fresh food. Yet living together, sharing these same conditions, African people have been able to find unity, create a common agenda, and build our own movements of resistance, politically and culturally. Threatened by this potential base of the African working class, the U.S. government has slandered our people as thugs and initiated programs in housing and school desegregation intended to disperse poverty. In other words, to disperse our community so that we are in the minority where we live. We can see this in contemporary processes of gentrification. Today, we talk with Yelena Bailey about her new book, How the Streets Were Made, Housing Segregation and Black Life in America. Yelena Bailey earned her doctorate in literature from the University of California, San Diego. She has an extensive history in teaching and research. She was raised in the Minneapolis area, and I'm excited to have this discussion with Yelena, a former classmate of mine, or even, as I like to call her, an academic sibling. How the Streets Were Made argues that the streets, a cultural representation of Black urban life, is the result of segregationist policies, as well as a social cultural entity that has impacted the ideas of Blackness in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Dr. Yelena Bailey. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here and to talk to you all about this. Slight uh, correction, it's uh, Elena Bailey. I know my mom gave me a, a name with an extra letter on it, but just want to put that out there. Oh, so all this time it's been Elena? <laughs> I know it's hard. I, you know, I'll mention it, but it, it, the why, the extra why is there for like 10 years. I know. <laughs> See, that's when I got my PhD. I thought, okay, well, then no one will ever say my first name again. I'm just... <laughs> oh, wow. This hey, is crazy. She, she ready to bust you out on the radio show. No, 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 no. That's my fault. Okay. That's my fault. Oh, wow. Okay. No, it's too good. It's too good. So. Congratulations on your new book project. Can you explain for our listeners your overall thesis and how the streets were made? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and you all mentioned this a little bit in the intro, but um, really my argument is that when we talk about particular Black urban space, like the streets or the hood or you know the different words that get interchanged for this space, that we're not just talking about the physical location that was created by segregation as housing policies, but we're talking about a larger sociocultural construct that really shapes the contours of how Blackness is understood, and that it's also a contested idea, right? And you see that play out not only in policy, but in culture and in the media in all these different ways. What are the origins of your book title? In the introductions, you note that the hood is a construct can you explain that for us? Yeah. Um, so uh, I thought I was being clever with my title because, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I think, great research out there from, um, you know, Douglas uh, Massey, Nancy Denton, a couple, you know, 
many, many other scholars that have talked about, you know, geographic segregation and a little bit about the hood or the streets, but really, again, it's like that physical space, right? Um, so in my title, I was like, well, let's talk about how the streets as an idea or as a cultural entity were made, right? Not just not just through policy, but through all these other ways. Um, so it's really how I got into the, the title itself. And in terms of the idea, um, I mean, I kind of spoke to this already, but, uh, you know, uh, Michael, you mentioned um, that my mom, you mentioned I grew up in the, the Minneapolis area. And so a lot of the book comes out of or that construct comes out of this idea that I, you know, I had always grown up aware of the idea that black space in particular, the hood or the streets was an idea that follows and racializes you regardless of whether you're in that physical location or not. And so as we took classes and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, cause we were in a lot of these same classes together and I got the theory and the knowledge to really flesh that out. I wanted to then use this project to explore what are the streets as an idea? What are they as a construct? And how does that uh, racialize and shape the way that Black people are understood, regardless of where they are physically? Now, in your introduction, you make an interesting reference to Nipsey Hussle. It was actually unexpected, but I really appreciated it. Born Armius Joseph Askadum, Nipsey Hussle was raised in the Crenshaw District of South Los Angeles. Nipsey's father was born in Eritrea, and his mother had immediate roots in the American South. On March 31, 2019, Nipsey Hussle was murdered by a police informant. Nipsey's murder hit African youth in South Los Angeles extremely hard. For many, like my younger cousins, Nipsey represented the radical potential of the African working class to move from gangbanging to building genuine economic development in their communities. Nipsey credited his political and economic vision of African liberation to a trip he took to Eritrea with his father and brother in 2004 at the age of 19. This is reflected in a 2010 interview that Nipsey conducted while on the set of the film Wrath of Cain. Let's hear an excerpt of that clip right now. Africa was full of natural resources, what they do. All the diamonds, they came and got it. All the gold, they came and got it. All the niggas, they came and got us. You know what I mean? It's the, the, the continent is raped of all its resources. So, you know what I mean? I guess the word they call it is colonialism. You know, the same thing going on with rap music, the same thing going on with all of our culture. Whether it's gang banging, whether it's trapping down south, whether it's hip hop, whatever it is. Like, you know, if they see it as, a, as, as an asset or as a resource, we don't got no, no, no means to go get it. You know what I mean? Other than our little pistols and handguns, we got in choppers and all that. Got millions of dollars, institutions set up, like the LAPD, like the feds, like the FBI. All this is they army. And they army make it to where you can inflict your will. Meaning if a don't want to do it from an agreement, you can come take it. If a don't want to agree and do it verbally, well, you got an army to come enforce your will. So we, we that's what we lack. You know what I mean? We don't have no army that's going to come protect our natural resources because ours is divided. How, you know what I'm saying? We, we don't even understand how we connected because, oh, you a blood, I'm from 60s. You, you from over, I'm from 60s. You from A-Tray, I'm from 60s. How does the title of your book relate to the death of Nipsey Hussle? Honestly, I was probably maybe halfway through the project when, uh, when he was killed. And I actually saw that tweet, I quote a tweet by this black uh, communication specialist uh, that I follow on, on Twitter. 
um, where she mentions, you know, Nipsey's death and she talks about the hood being a construct that you really can't escape, right? So even a figure like him who has, you know, in the eyes of kind of the mainstream world gotten this success and was trying to, you know, do some really empowering things in terms of uh, economic, you know, self-determination and the community that he grew up in, um, he ends up being murdered. And uh, when I thought about his death, when I thought about that, particularly that tweet that resonated with me, this idea that I don't think we think or talk enough about the role of the streets and how they permeate the narratives of our lives that, you know, even someone like him that's achieved, even from a capitalist perspective, you know, you've gotten this success financially as a mainstream artist or whatever, that can't save you from the construct of the streets. And even in his death, it's it's shadowed by the way that Black life and death are perceived in terms of violence and the image of the streets and the narratives that shape our spaces and not all these other things around, you know, his political and community work. So I think that's uh, a lot of kind of what I was thinking when I thought that would be a good way to segue into the project of like his death and the way that it was talked about um, is a good example of how the streets are this construct that, you know, that really are, as that tweet says, inescapable unless we really, you know, deal with their reality of them and get into redress. Um, I appreciate that. As you noted, the hood, the streets, the ghetto have many meanings for different people. Nipsey was involved in a project of redefining that definition for the African working class in South Los Angeles. This construction of the hood is a result of a historical war on ideas. However, it is also the result of a military assault on Africa and African people. What's the role of HUD and other federal housing policies? Ooh, that is a great question. You know, something I really explore is, uh, on one hand, the more kind of recent history of the 20th century in terms of, uh, you know, state and local covenants that uh, that reinforce kind of the physical segregation of of uh, black and white communities and primarily corralling black people into urban uh, projects, right? Well, um, you know, white people were subsidized into home ownership in the suburbs. And of course, that really takes off with the creation of the Federal Housing Association. Um, and then uh, the homeowners uh, loan corporation, both of which, again, subsidize home ownership for almost exclusively white Americans and put them in these nice new suburban communities. Right. Um, But there's that level of those policies. Right. But I think something important to acknowledge is that this is part of a broader kind of you. And we talk about kind of the U S you know, the, the project of U S imperialism, this is one facet of a much larger project. Right. And particular, the idea of um, certain spaces as being the domain of kind of white power extend, you know, obviously far back into colonization, but even ideologically through the own your own home campaign, um, the government was, you know, part of campaigns to change people's ideologies and beliefs around homeownership as being tied to American patriotism and hetero, you know, uh, nuclear families um, and an investment in capitalism because physically owning your home was owning a space and a piece of this kind of capitalist, you know, nation. Um, so that work was being done all along the way. And then by the time you get the, the, the federal government stepping in with the FHA, 
and Hulk, and then later what we see with HUD, that's really just making it more widely accessible and solidifying it on a scale that we hadn't seen before the mid 20th century. There's, you know, there's the attempt of, you know, kind of white supremacist power to, to shape the narratives of these spaces. And then there are the ways that black people can test that and carve out discursive space to name and to, um, to, to define that space in different ways. Oh, Elena, what is the FHA and Hulk? Oh, sorry. And if I'm correct, Hulk are the people who created the redlining maps. Are they not? Yes, thank you. So the FHA is the Federal Housing Administration, and that was created in 1934 by the National um, Housing Act. And then you have Hulk, which is the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Uh, hopefully I'm not messing up my, um, yeah, Homeowners Loan Corporation. All of these are created by the same act in 1934, right? You also had the Veterans Administration. And so what happens is, you know, previous to this, homeownership was very inaccessible for people who weren't wealthy. You had to put down, you know, 50% and pay it off in a five to 10 year, you know, term, right? So what the 1934 National Housing Act did with the creation of FHA and Hulk is give these loans now that we're more familiar with where you could put three to 5% down, pay it off over 30 years. And most importantly, you begin to build equity immediately, right? Hulk was the portion that dealt with current homeowners and gave them new turns. The FHA was about giving new loans to people, right? And so, you know, this obviously opened up homeownership by subsidizing it uh, widely. And again, primarily, almost exclusively, I should say to white Americans, you know, for the first 34 years, they were able to openly and overtly exclude, uh, you know, black people from obtaining and having access to these loans. And then the way that they did this was through redlining, right? So the FHA is the organization that created what we now know. If you Google redlining, you see those maps of each city. And I, I encourage everyone to look up their own city and see the histories of these maps and to overlay them with today because they often look virtually the same. So what you see is, you know, the predominantly white neighborhoods are, are colored green. And then you have a scale all the way down to red, which is where you have a neighborhood that is predominantly black, right? And so the redlining, meaning these are the economically dangerous neighborhoods, risky, right? Um, and therefore, someone cannot get a loan to live in those neighborhoods. Um, what's interesting about this history, though, is uh, before these policies, you know, were put in place, in certain cities, you saw a lot of uh, kind of integrated neighborhoods along kind of working class lines, particularly in kind of, you know, the Oakland area or some northern cities. And what these policies did effectively is to uh, to crush that that, you know, working class uh, solidarity by saying to white working class workers, you can move into the middle class and the suburbs and use these loans that have access to that and enter into mainstream whiteness. But you cannot do that by staying you, can, you're, you will be economically risky if you stay in these um, integrated neighborhoods, right? So it made even being adjacent to to blackness dangerous or risky, right? Um, and there's it makes me think of that quote in Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay where he talks about blackness becoming the narrative of blackness as a contagion, right? So that's really what these policies did, but they did it through the lens of economic logic so that even after the federal housing, uh, the Fair Housing Act in 1968 takes place, 
yes, they take out the exclusive language saying you can't get a loan or sell to someone black, but you still have the, the, you know, the language of economic logic. So this is still being perpetrated today. As you know, Coates talks about the contagion of blackness, but in this movement, we say that colonialism is the virus Mm -hmm. uh, and the parasite. So as you know, scholars like Omi and Wanat refer to the result of these processes as racialized outcomes, almost as if the result of these liberal government policies were an accident. But as you outlined it here, it was no accident at all. This this was, in fact, central to the construction of modern American colonial capitalism. Your book is largely focused on the post-war history of African people and urban communities in America. But you also dive into a much larger analysis of settler colonialism and domestic colonialism in the U.S. On page five, you write, from the Homestead Act of 1862 to the Federal Housing Act of 1934, whiteness and American belonging have been intimately connected to the ownership of land and homes. Unsurprisingly, both of these policies which radically subsidized ownership for white Americans were rarely, if ever, applied in service to black Americans. Today, the wealth accumulated over generations, thanks to these policies, has resulted in a nearly insurmountable racialized wealth gap. Black Americans possess approximately 5% of the wealth of white Americans. Arguably, The systematic imposition of geographic segregation through these policies has impacted Black Americans in a way that is second only to slavery and mass incarceration. That's a very powerful quote. Can you explain that? Yeah, happy to. I love that you bring up, you know, the argument that that this isn't the accidental kind of product of policies, right? That this was intentional, that this is systematic, that this is the streets, as if I'm talking about it as, you know, a social cultural construct meant to, you know, relegate blackness in specific ways, that that is intentional. And that when we see all the results and the implications of that, it's, it's the streets operating as they were designed to be right. But I think it's important, even though you're right, I focus a lot on kind of the mid 20th century onward. It was important to me to, to put that in the larger frame of the, again, the, the, the project of U.S. imperialism, because, um, if you look at, you know, the Homestead Act, this idea of U.S. nationalism being connected to the white dominion over land, right? And really, this is just a continuation of that. Um, and it's a spread of that from, you know, these few kind of settler colonial leaders to we need to expand. And really, to me, what happens with housing policy is you take this, that project, and you make it more of a culture, right? So you expand this by giving, you know, access to your middle class, working class, white American, so they have a cultural and an economic investment in the white dominion over space, right, through the purchase of their home. So it's not just about them owning their home. It's about them owning an investment in a possession over the land. It's, it's about them owning an investment in, in the project of U.S. settler colonialism. A lot of people are talking about the racial wealth gap or they talk about geographic segregation, but their answers without that context fall into a very kind of, you know, neoliberal solution of, well, all we have to do is just, you know, redraw 
you know, lines so that people, neighborhoods are more integrated or all we have to do is, you know, um, forgive, you know, this amount of debt or do X, Y, Z. But if you don't connect it to this larger power, this project of power, then you're missing, you know, a fundamental piece, right? The answer to this, which we all know is not to just give, the answer isn't just to give black people wealth and possession of land because we don't just want our piece of the settler colonial project, right? The answer is to deal with that issue in and of itself, right? You have to trace back and redress has to look at that larger project. Um, so that's part of why I wanted to frame it the way I did, because, uh, you know, I think in some of my other discussions, I didn't want people to get lost in the idea of, well, if we just change the way people are depicted on film, or if we just change black access to wealth, that's, that's, that's not going to trace back to the root issue. You have to see this as a systematic part of a larger, a larger project of U.S. nationalism and imperialism. You are listening to The People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Elena Bailey, author of How the Streets Were Made. So, Uhuru, Elena, chapter two of your book is titled The Secret of Selling the Negro, which is taken from the title of a 1954 marketing film created by Johnson Publications, the parent company of Ebony Magazine. What is that film about? There's a lot to say about that film. I often, when I was uh, teaching, I would tell my students, you know, I mean, what I love about history and things like this and going back to these films or into kind of Ebony's archives is that, I mean, history is wild and you can't make this up. It just, it gives you the material right there. So this film was, um, it was a joint project that uh, John Johnson had uh, did with, it was Sarah Productions, which does a lot of kind of national films or did a lot of national films. And I'm, you know, I might talk about this later with Ebony, but for context, John Johnson, which you mentioned, he is the founder of Ebony as well as several other uh, kind of, you know, uh, magazines intended for a black audience um wanted to bring attention to what he considered kind of you know a newer emerging market or at least through white the lens of the white gaze a newer emerging market and uh he did so by kind of going around to these different white businessmen and government officials and kind of trying to champion uh the potential if they would market their goods towards, in particular, kind of the black middle class, I should say, but in general, black audiences. And so uh, the first kind of result of that um, was the creation of Ebony in, in 1945. But later you get this film in 54, which is meant to really sell the idea of marketing to black people, um, you know, by talking about their characteristics and um, by explaining how to approach them and what they want. Um, and it's an interesting film because I encourage anyone, if you're fascinated or into those things, to check it out online. Um, because it starts by, you know, framing kind of uh, Black people as consumers, but as if it's a brand new market that appeared overnight. In fact, that is the language they use. They say, out of nowhere, overnight, right? Um, and no kind of acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, well, previous to the 1950s, you know, I wonder why Black people weren't the consumers that you wanted them to be or, or why the financial situation would be different, right? We know the answer to that because we can talk about being enslaved. We could talk about, you know, uh, white supremacist violence. We could talk about all these other things, but um, that gets overlooked. And the film was really saying, here's this brand new market for you to focus on and kind of going through their characteristics. And that's the most interesting thing I think about the film is, is Johnson's role 
in partnering with these white business owners and government uh, kind of officials to create a narrative uh, about black consumerism. Right. Um, and the film kind of digs into things like bring brand conscious and, um, uh, you know, on one hand, wanting things of good quality, but only wanting certain name brands, um, you know, uh, caring about what their friends think. And like there's a line in there about being really conscientious about what other people think. Right. So it's an interesting because it's this early origin of some of these narratives that we now really see as the dominant framing of um black consumerism and as you mentioned that really becomes just the justification of the systemic kind of oppression of black people right to say well well this is why right this ideology justifies these particular things in chapter two you write the so-called extravagance of black urban life is not the result of some pathology but rather the effect of the streets operating as they were intended to from the beginning can you explain that yeah, happy to. Again, Ebony Magazine is is the kind of case study I go through in um, in the book, in that chapter, because it, it was the flagship magazine, right? I mean, I'm sure if you ask some of your family members or, you know, folks in the community, I mean, everybody had a copy of Ebony, right? Um, and that was what was primarily used to target Black people as consumers. And what I found in going through that, you know, that archival, um, the archives, is the kind of proliferation of particular advertisements, which help to construct a narrative around Black people's consumers who only wanted, you know, liquor, entertainment, cars, cosmetics, and primarily cosmetics that were about assimilation into white beauty standards, right? I mean, that was the purpose of of the magazine. And so, you know, Johnson even would brag about it. I have a I don't think I have the quote, but he, the, in one of the issues, he talked about how, you know, they were uh, one of the top magazines in advertising. And it was predominant. If you look at the pages, almost 75 percent were filled with ads. And he would brag about the fact that they were in the top advertisements in terms of of liquor, in terms of cosmetics, in terms of these things that I'm like, we should be thinking critically about the fact that these are the these are the primary things being advertised. He said, I found it here. So. Ebony ranked fifth in drug proprietaries, eighth in cigarettes, 10th in liquor, and 16th in cosmetics. And this is against dozens and dozens of magazines across the, the U.S., right? So it's in the top, you know, kind of 10 or 15 when it comes to those particular goods. And it you have to think about why are those the goods that are being marketed towards Black people at a time when the boom of homeownership that, you know, white people in particular had access to because of those housing policies and the subsidized loans meant in their magazines, particularly Life magazine, they're being advertised goods for ownership, like, you know, your flooring, your windows, your things like that. Things that reinforce the idea of white people as owners of space, right? Where black people are being cultivated as consumers of cosmetic goods, of being focused on appearance, of the flashy cars. Those are the goods being advertised, right? Consuming liquor. And so now when we hear these narratives about black space of the hood or the streets and the narratives of them of black people as consumers that only care about flashy goods that only want extravagance and what they're gucci and want this or that right on one hand we can talk about that as you know a larger conversation of of a symptom of kind of capitalism in the way that it uh the way that it, that the desire uh for that power manifest but i but i also think it's important to look at the way that that particular perception of black people 
was cultivated over decades through targeted advertising. And it wasn't just what Johnson was doing, but the conversations he's having in films like The Secret to Selling the Negro, the conversations he's having that um, show up in the main advertising magazines, two advertisers, they had their journals that they would read. There's articles about selling to Negroes and how food and liquor is what get their tops dollar, right? So it was decades of constructing this narrative. So now when people complain or they use this language of saying, you know, well, black people, they don't really want anything. All they care about is their food and their flashy goods. That's a narrative that can be traced directly back to housing policies and the construction of black space as, again, a cultural construct and idea that is, you know, not just the physical space, but also these ideas, right? Right, right. Thank you for that analysis. How was this connected to the integrationist political strategies of groups like the National Urban League and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People? Yeah, that's a great question. You see actually a lot of, uh, of uh, leadership from those two organizations writing in Ebony throughout this time. And um, I have this quote in the book where where Johnson really frames Ebony about about showing kind of he calls it quote the happier side of Negro life end quote and so uh, it was part of this kind of larger project to in his mind right the idea was you know black people are worth worthy of consumer attention which we could talk about the flaws in that logic um, and together with some of the people who wrote in that are members of the Urban League and the NAACP, you have this idea of, you know, of, you know, racial uplift. If we have them black middle class and we show them doing well, and alongside these ads, you have, you know, a plethora of essays that are all about, you know, the black middle class, right? Taking vacations, you know, black excellence here, you know, X, Y, Z. And so it is, it is, I'm glad you brought that up, important to read those things, you know, in juxtaposition because, the idea of the black consumer being worthy of attention, even though if we take a critical eye, we can say, hmm, what kind of attention um, was justified by all these other essays and, you know, the participation of leadership in those organizations to say, look, here's what we're doing, you know, to improve the race. Here's what we're doing, you know, to show that there are black, you know, teachers and people going on vacation and doing X, Y, Z. Um, you know, there were, I have to, you know, acknowledge there were, especially as you go on in time, I will say it wasn't immediate on in time. Some of the editors were tackling issues, even like, um, you know, housing segregation in this policy. But um, one of the things I note in, in the chapter is they'll do this and have this critical analysis. And then on the next page or on the very same page, you have these advertisements that are reinforcing the narratives that run counter to that. Well, yeah, thanks for that. Because not to take this in too much of a different direction, but uh, one of the editors of Ebony Magazine during that time was Lerone Bennett. And you mentioned Lerone yes. Bennett. And his essays basically formed the core of what was the original text uh, the before the Mayflower, mm-hmm. which was one of the earliest uh, texts on uh, you know Black history in the U.S. But uh, one thing that uh, I even point out in my work is that he opens up before the Mayflower uh, looking at the African people who came to Jamestown. And he argues that they weren't slaves. uh, They were immigrants and things like that. And despite like some of the wealth of knowledge that he really puts out to me, that itself uh, really just shows, you know, Ebony, uh, his work, even though it's very well respected, but his work 
really as just another integrationist politics, you know, him mm-hmm. trying to find, you know, room for, say, progressive black uh, people in the U.S., but in the U.S. mainstream, right? right? And some of that is is reflected in some of the problems that came up recently with the 1619 Project. That it, So we still see some of this as a part of, of the project. And I feel like, you know, this is so crucial because it, much of what you're pointing at is the result of liberal policy within the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Liberal policy, policy that was, uh, and and this is so important because this is a moment right now which people are saying we need to go back to the New Deal, right? We need a 21st century New Deal. We need a Green New Deal. But FHA and Hulk and all this other stuff was the result of the New Deal. Absolutely. I'm oh. glad you brought that up because every time I hear someone say we need a new another New Deal, I'm like cringing and want to raise my hand and be like, do you know? what the new deal meant for black people. Like that's not how that works. Right. Um, and even what was granted, you know, it was counted as a victory when, when black people were given access to public housing, but that began the transformation of public housing from, you know, the single level family homes that were meant to be, you know, subsidized for various reasons to being ghettos and urban towers. And, you know, the narrative changes as soon as black people have access. Right. Um, but I, I just wanted to say in terms of, you know, Bennett Jr., I think what you mentioned with his work in Before the Mayflower, it circles back to this idea of like somehow there's this this need for, like you said, integrationist politics or respectability politics here of like only if you can prove there were people who weren't enslaved are we then worthy or different, right? As if people who were enslaved were not, you know, revolutionaries and radicals and artists and all these things like I think there's too much of this we have to prove our respectability and our belonging and that's what's going to take us forward and I mean we can definitely bring up that critique today oh yeah thanks for that you are listening to the people's war radio show produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg Florida our guest today is Elena Bailey author of How the Streets Were Made As the civil rights movement of the 1950s developed into the black power movement of the 1960s, the narrative created by white colonial power about African people, in particular, the black working class, began to change. In your book, Elena, you write about ideas like the welfare queen, the culture of poverty, and what others call the permanent underclass, put forward by people like former Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who wrote a report on the black families blaming our poverty on too many single black mothers, and the anthropologist Oscar Lewis. Can you talk about some of these slander campaigns? How have they affected the African community and policies imposed upon us? Yeah, happy to do that. When we look at even the origin of of these narratives that still dominate discussions of black space in terms of the welfare queen, in terms of the culture of poverty. One of the greatest kind of banes of my existence is, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, because his idea just continues to dominate perceptions of blackness and black space in the U S but it's important to acknowledge that Moynihan and Lewis were operating out of this place of liberalism at the time. They thought they were bringing a point of departure from there's something inherent in the genetics of black people to it's a culture or it's the product of, you know, 
slavery and and uh, natal alienation and the dominance of black women like that was their idea of a of a liberal progressive perspective right but as we know all it did was create these 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 regressive narratives um, that still place the blame on black people for their systematic oppression but do it through these different ideological lenses right so yes instead of it being the pseudoscientific genetic issue we'll blame it on you know, their dominance and response to slavery of, of black women, or we'll blame it on their desire not to work because of the welfare system. It's the fault of liberal policy and not, you know, uh, and not their genetics. But these are still regressive narratives that, that instead of, you know, again, instead of making this kind of pseudoscientific claim, they just transfer it to a cultural claim, right? There's something inherent in the culture of the black people inhabiting these spaces that makes them morally deficient. Um, and that continues today, right? Anytime we talk about, you know, structural change or systematic change, there's this kind of idea underneath that, that black people aren't worthy of that because they haven't demonstrated themselves morally or intellectually to, to be worthy of that. And that circles back to that liberal idea where many black, you know, liberals, their idea is, well, if we just prove ourselves worthy, right, or respectable, but we know that the issue is larger than that. How have hip hop, film, and other black cultural production played a role in countering those ideas, as well as reflect and reinforce resistance of the African working class. Yes, as a genre, it was literally created in the streets, right? The the implications or the results of these housing policies led to kind of the destruction of a lot of Black communities. Um, and then you had, you know, a lot of quote unquote urban renewal projects that uh, further kind of, you know, broke up neighborhoods by constructing things like the South, the cross South, uh, South Bronx cross expressway, excuse me. And then you had, you know, uh, a lack of investment in jobs and education. So you have all these systematic things happening that resulted in a host of black youth then trying to deal with the time and space that they're in without, you know, without those structural kind of access to power and with neighborhoods that have been decimated by these policies, right? So what happens or the result of this is, you know, you have people creating block parties. And really, I think what's important about these block parties is to tie it to, again, this structural need. People were raising money for rent oftentimes, right? You you get a block party, you say everybody pays a couple bucks um, and you come have this party and that's how you raise your money. And we talk about, you know, DJ Cool Herc. He, I think his first party was a sister was raising rent money or something like that. But these block parties are what give birth to hip hop, right? So it's literally created in the streets. They would siphon off electricity from the light poles and have these parties. So in my mind, hip hop is a genre that is, you know, a direct product and directly in kind of a physical material way connected to the physical space of the streets, right? And then over time, you see um, the way that Black artists have used this unique genre as an art form to contest these narratives of, you know, Black people as uh, particularly Black youth as, you know, criminal, the criminalization uh, of being dangerous and violent and, you know, X, Y, Z, to instead kind of reflect the the structural kind of conditions that produce violence and poverty rather than this being an inherent kind of moral deficiency on the place of Black people, right? And they do a lot more. I think people, you know, there are plenty of scholars who do this and, and plenty of listeners and lovers of hip hop, but I, I would like people to spend more time really digging into the way artists themselves are theorizing black space. You know, I talk about the Fugees, for example, and the community they found kind of internationally, right? Um, as you have kind of, you know, Haitian uh, immigrants come into the city and 
uh, black Americans here and, and the way that they find a solidarity in their experiences in these, you know, U.S. urban spaces and what they see in Kingston and Jamaica and what they see in, in different places in Haiti and kind of the connections between U.S. policy here in terms of black space and kind of Western imperialism abroad. You know, I also talk about kind of more contemporary artists like Kendrick Lamar, who in my mind, in particular, if you look at Good Kid Mad City is a great example of someone who is not not playing into respectability pro- uh, politics, but instead is using his artistic talent to articulate the humanity of being black in that space. All I see is strobe lights blinding me in my hindsight, finding me by myself. Promise me you can help in all honesty. I got time to be copacetic until you have finally made decision to hold me against my will. It was like a head on collision that folded me standing still. I can never pick out the difference and grade a cop on the bill. Every time you clock in the morning, I feel you just want to kill all my innocence while ignoring my purpose to persevere as a better person. I know you heard this and probably fear but what am i supposed to do when the blink and the red and blue flash from the top of your roof and your dog has to say roof and you ask lift up your shirt because you wonder if a tattoo of affiliation can make it a pleasure to put me through gang fouls but that don't matter because the matter his racial profile i heard them chatter he's probably young but i know that he's down step on his neck as hard as your bulletproof vest he don't mind he know we never respect the good kid mad city talking about the the systematic and the social forces at play but talking about the reality of the people and also just the the very human experiences of being a teenager and just trying to have fun and live and be in these spaces and often that humanity is not afforded when we talk about um, mainstream or dominant narratives of black space what about some of the films in the chapter five i talk about film and television a little bit um and i particularly talk about kind of the hood genre films of the you know 90s and their attempt to particularly because it was black um directors you know like john singleton who were taking their experiences in you know south central la and writing these scripts and producing these and attempting to to give a, a depiction or representation of black space. But of course, what happens is these become consumed by mainstream white audiences when especially kind of the big blockbusters that Singleton produced. And so the way that they're interpreted and the way that they the way they lend themselves to the kind of understanding or imagination of black space are very different for white and black audiences, right? Born and raised in South Los Angeles, John Singleton burst onto the scene with his 1991 debut film, Boys in the Hood, a fictional coming-of-age story inspired by his life and the lives of people he knew growing up. Following Boys in the Hood, Singleton found subsequent success with films like Poetic Justice, Higher Learning, and Rosewood, a chronicle of the 1923 Rosewood Massacre in North Florida. Singleton found renewed success with the hit show Snowfall, a series about the U.S. government's infestation 
of the African community with crack cocaine. Season 4 of Snowfall debuts February 2021. Singleton passed away April 28, 2019. Uh, so talk about that and I talk a little bit about how Moonlight is really kind of a divergence of that. Um, in particular because it goes away from those early hood genre films of here's the lone person trying to kind of escape or make it out of the hood or, you know, make it through the streets to like... Juan in that movie is the drug dealer and the mentor and, you know, is tender and hard all at once because humanity is more complex and black people are more complex than this. You know, you make it out of the hood or you don't kind of scenario. I do think that your film, um, your film analysis actually harkens directly back to the period of the post-war period in which um, we're talking about, because when you look at Boys in the Hood, it really is an update of Cooley High. And Cooley mm. High is actually uh, inspired by American graffiti. Uh, but so so it's interesting that you actually make those those connections, because at the end of the day, they just become about coming of age narratives of how one exceptional African, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, overcomes all the stuff in the hood. Meanwhile, all his friends in, end up dead or in jail. Uh, and that's the exact same story that's being invested into, which harkens all the way back to this uh, construction of the streets itself. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. What we see, I'm exactly right. I mean, that's what I was trying to get at is, as well as I, I want to acknowledge the work that someone like John Singleton was was doing, it is, again, this exceptional, again, this idea of exceptionality is what will save us instead of looking at the structures and the power at play, right? And I make a similar discussion of The Wire because, I mean, The Wire is kind of like a a liberal favorite, right? Um, For many people, especially kind of white liberals, it was, this is what helped them humanize the streets and humanize Black people who live in those spaces, right? Um, And it's praised in all these ways. I think it was one of Obama's favorite shows. And one of the things I go and talk about in the book is the critique of this, because if you get through The Wire, at the end of the day, it still depicts Black space as a irredeemable space right and that's what i'm getting at. it's we talk about the streets as a construct and not just these individual characters what are these films and these television shows saying about black space and if they're ultimately reinforcing the idea that black space is dangerous and irredeemable is that radical you know obviously i would say not right so who are you listening to now this is not new by any stretch of the imagination but buddy has been one of my kind of artists i've been really into lately in particular, he has a song and a music video for Trouble on Central. And I wish that I had included it in the book because as someone who grew up there, I think he he's depicting blackness and black space in ways that I find really intriguing. So, I, I mean, I end up finding myself listening to that song, going back to it uh, a lot. Buddy is an up and coming rapper from the south side of Compton, California, which is signified in the name of his debut album, Harlan and Alondra his neighborhood cross streets. Much like the albums Section 80 and Good Kid Mad City by Kendrick Lamar, also from Compton, Buddy's Trouble on Central, a single from Harlan and Alondra, expresses his desire to advance in life despite suffering multiple forms of colonial containment. Just so good at being in trouble Spending my days out in the ghetto Mama say that I need to be careful No 
going downtown on the Blue Line Metro. Car overheated in the can't afford a rental. Broke down Chevrolet sitting on Central. Turning up my headphones, looking out the window. Lauren Hill playing, it could be so simple. Man, I just can't wait till I get on. What the hell is taking so long? I wish I had a girl by my side. Wish I had a brand You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Elena Bailey, author of How the Streets Were Made. You open your book with a reference to your mom. Your mom was raised in North Minneapolis. You end the book discussing the murder of George Floyd. In what ways do these two figures influence your project? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, and I realized for people who aren't from the Twin Cities, Northside will not be familiar to you. But and this is a good example of how widespread understandings of black space are. Because if I say South Side of Chicago, or if I say South Central LA, everybody knows what that means, right? Because these narratives are so, you know, pervasive. But the North Side is like Minneapolis's version of the South Side, right? Um, so my mom grew up in the projects there. And I talk a little bit about how even when we lived in public housing, she was like, well, I'm going to get in the public housing in the suburbs so you have access to these schools. But her experience growing up in these spaces and the way that, that these narratives and these power structures influence her life led her to move us around every year, essentially. So that kind of influenced the project because that's how I got to this idea of the streets as this larger construct that even if I wasn't growing up in the North Side, the North Side was shaping my life because this perception or this understanding of the streets and what they mean for black life is what led my mom to keep moving us around. Right. Um, so the idea that the streets are, are more than again, than this physical space, but it's this larger construct that, uh, that really uh, shapes black life, not just in these ideological and cultural ways, but as we've talked about in these tangible materialist, you know, ways as well. And then I talk, you know, in the end to talk about George Floyd's murder because I'm, I'm, you know, it was back in the Twin Cities when uh, George Floyd was murdered. Unfortunately, what happened, I mean, what happened to him is not uncharacteristic for white supremacy in the U.S. in general, but particularly the Twin Cities as someone who's intimately familiar with growing up here, right? Uh, I think we've been consistently ranked the fourth worst place in the nation for Black people to live and the second worst metro area. Um, and that's because it's a, it's a deeply segregated city, right? Um, and, you know, economically, uh, you know, physically, uh, in terms of educational outcome. I mean, it's a deeply segregated city. Um, and the, and the structural divide is, is, is vast. Right. And so when I, you know, when George Floyd was murdered and, you know, we're out there protesting his murder, I really was thinking about the fact, and I think I have a quote, something like this in the conclusion that we're not just protesting his murder. Right. Um, or his, you know, his death, but we're pro protesting the conditions of his life, right? I mean, he was murdered because when they see George Floyd, they see the streets, they see violence, they see criminality, they see danger, they see all the narratives um, and structures that are coded onto the bodies of people like us. And so I think that was important for me to bring up in the conclusion, because I, it, I want people to see the 
the connections to the things that we're protesting today, right? Um, that it's all of this policy and all this work on a, you know, a structural and a cultural level is what led us here and what we need to dismantle if we're going to have any sort of, you know, freedom. So once again, congrats on your book. Where can people find your book? So the book is available. Uh, the UNC Press website is probably the best place to buy it. And I believe it's unc.org. It's available anywhere you buy books, but um, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. But obviously you want to or- probably avoid certain certain monopolies out there. Also, side note, I have to say big thank you for our, I mean, it is, it's been, it's hard to believe you mentioned it. it's been a while. I won't say on, on air how long it's been since grad school because it feels like it was yesterday. But um Thank you for inviting me to be here. And I, I do want to say we were to a few folks like us in grad school and having you as a, you know, like you said, what do you say? Academic sibling? I can't remember. Um, but to, to be in dialogue with is really what led to me being able to think and, and do this work. So I just I want to say thank you because that that did mean a lot to me over the years. Oh, 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 thanks. Thanks. It means a lot to me as well and to my whole family. So thanks. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today was Yelena Bailey, author of How the Streets Were Made. WBPU is a project of African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Elena Bailey, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. It's a real thing in the celebration. It's a dime block declaration. 59th and 5th Ave, Granny House with vanilla wafers. It's the remedy to separation. Tupac of my generation. Blue pill in the open matrix. Red rose in the gray pavement. Young black nigga trapped and he can't change it. Know he a genius, he just can't claim it. Cause they left him no platforms to explain it. He frustrated so he get faded. But deep down inside he know you can't fade him. How long should I stay dedicated? How long till opportunity meet preparation? I need some real work and reparations. Or I run up in your bank just for recreation. Dedication, hard work, plus patience. To some more my sacrifice, I'm done waiting. I'm done waiting, told you that I wasn't playing. Now you hear what I've been saying. Dedication. Dedication. Not the box, boxing homies, three on one, got DP, but I ain't dropped. Chirp on me, here I come, spin around the block, they broke down me, said I ran a stop sign, but that's a lie. I spent my whole life staring at the stage, playing Sega, daddy smoking shirt, mama playing spades, catching vapors, grandma said I get some Jordans for my grades, that's my baby, when she died, my heart broke a hundred ways. 
spent my whole life trying to make it, trying to chase it. The cycle of a black man divided, trying to break it. You take a lot, this shit, don't cry about it, just embrace it. Mind a setback for major comeback, that's my favorite. My ick and L said you do a song with Nip. K. Dot here, better grip. I said he a man first, you hear the words out his lips. About flourishing from the streets to black businesses. Level four, y'all living, giving to false imprisonment. Listen close, my looking is bigger than deuces and foes. My son in this elementary, we close, my defin get straight like that. I give you the game, go back to the turf and give it right back. For generations, we've been dealt bad hands with bad plans. Prove your dedication by hopping out grand ams. I'm at the premiere, politicking with top nip and snoop. It's clock watching the way we cool from dedication. If it ain't congratulating, it look like hate. If it ain't congratulating, it look like what Nip said. Hold up. Nah, this ain't entertainment. It's fucking on a slave ship. These soldiers and spirituals I swam against them waves with. Ended up on shore today, amazement. Now hope the example I set's not contagious. Lockers behind gates, but can't tame us. Used to be stay safe, now stay dangerous. Cause ain't no point playing defense. That's why I dove off the deep end without a life jacket. Couple mil, tore the world, all my life cracking. Cook the books, bring it back, so there's no taxes Royalties, publishing, plus our own masters I'd be made if I slay for some wakes Eric's, I was mapping this out, I hit the heist backwards Topping out the 85 and rebot classes Read a couple marathons just to get established To make it happen, you got to have this. Dedication, hard work, plus patience To some more of my sacrifice, I'm done waiting I'm done waiting, told you that I wasn't playing Now you hear what I've been saying Dedication Dedication, dedication, dedication.